pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much uh, for Sundays, Lord, for uh, days that we are able to come together, Lord, the gathering that you do of the saints, Lord, to sing, to open your word, to pray. Lord, we're just so grateful for um, this rich blessing that we have. Lord, we thank you for your call to, for us to, to give as well, for us to participate in the spreading of the gospel, Lord. We're grateful that you have called us to that, and we pray that you would bless the funds that have been collected tonight uh, for both the perseverance and spreading of the gospel here in Wyoming, uh, but also throughout the world in Uruguay as well, Lord. We're grateful for um, our ability to participate in that, and Lord, uh, we pray that you would just bless uh, the way that these monies are spent and may you get all the honor and glory from that. Lord, we're grateful for Brennan uh, and uh, his internship over the next year, Lord. We're grateful that um, we will be able to uh, hear him preach, but Lord, that he will be able to learn and uh, flourish here as well. Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless Brennan richly as much as he blesses us, Lord. We pray that, uh, I know that you've been with him this week, and we just pray that you would Continue to be with him tonight and give him power in his word. Lord, convict our hearts, Lord, and um, may we apply what we learn and hear tonight as much as we possibly can throughout this week. We pray this all in your name, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if it was planned at all. I don't know the inner workings of Wayne's mind, but we actually got a foretaste of the passage that we're going to read tonight in our confession. I think we had Colossians 14 and 15 at one point, uh, 1 verses 14 and 15 in our confession of sin this morning, but we're going to take up the larger context of that section of Scripture this evening. So if you have a copy of Scripture, open up to Colossians 1 verses 13 through 23. Colossians 1, verses 13 through 23. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Would you pray with me? Gracious and heavenly Father, 
we take great hope and confidence in the fact that you have promised to work through means, that you have promised to work through your word, through the reading of the word, through the preaching of the word, to convict our hearts, to grow us more and more into the image of Christ, to form us. Um, and Lord, I just pray that you can grant us all um, joyful and expectant hearts, grant us sharp minds, and above all ears to hear this word this evening, Lord, with confidence that you will speak through your word and that you will speak mightily. And we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you are movie buffs. Some of you who know me know that I am. But if you happen to tune in to the Oscars earlier this year, you might have heard about a movie with a funny title called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. It was nominated for 11 awards, and it ended up winning seven. And it's a movie that tries to talk about the existence of parallel universes, uh, the multiverse, these parallel realities, to try and comment on the fragmented and sometimes absurd nature of our very own internet-dominated society, a world in which you can be anyone whenever you want at any time. And it's a movie that is trying to ask the question in this society, how or even if we can make sense of this world? Now, I'm not here trying to give a review or even a recommendation, but I came across an interview with one of the movie's directors, Daniel Kwan. And in this interview, he says that this movie and every movie that he's ever made is a direct response to him losing his faith as a former evangelical. And he doesn't give any further insight into that comment. But if you think about the premise of this movie, you start to wonder that perhaps his own experience of a growing, fragmented, and confusing world undermined his view of Christianity. Perhaps his perception of this world kept getting larger and larger, while his understanding of Jesus remained relatively small. And in short, I think what happened is that he domesticated Jesus. In one way or another, he found a way to refashion Christ into a more manageable image, but an image that was unable to give an answer to his own disillusionment or the anguish in the world he saw around him. And I think that we're all a little bit susceptible to this impulse. We all want a Jesus that's just a little bit more comfortable. We want a personal Jesus that conforms to our desires and to our preferences, and not a Jesus that exists outside of ourselves. Not a Jesus that wields any real authority beyond that which we're willing to give him. But you see, the problem with refashioning these counterfeit saviors is that they will never help they will always come up short when we're faced with the more difficult realities of this world. To give some examples, if we limit Jesus' power only to our political views, then how do we cope when the other political candidate is in office? If we think that Jesus' loving provision only goes so far as our understanding of the good life, then how do we handle financial ruin or hardship? Or if we think that Jesus' grace and mercy are only gracious and merciful insofar as we remain spiritually devoted, or if we have a certain strength of faith, then what do we do when we fall into a season of sin or, seasonal depre or uh, spiritual depression? What do we start to think about Jesus at that point? Or, in the very end, if his rule and his kingdom don't extend beyond the confines of our own skulls, 
then how can we possibly face the world beyond our heads? You see, when we come up with these domesticated and counterfeit saviors, we are always left without a meaningful answer to our sin, to our shame, to our suffering, and our confusion in this world. And that's why we need to hear what Paul has to say about Christ this evening. Because the only antidote to such a condition is to truly look, see, and behold Christ in all of his glory. So instead of encountering a small Savior, tonight's passage gives us an expansive picture of Jesus. He is not a powerless Savior, but he is Lord over all, and he has come to save sinners. Lord over all creation who has come to reconcile sinners to himself. So if you are coming this evening and you are weary, if you are sinful, if you are fearful of the world that you find yourself in, this passage offers a gospel antidote by showing us the glories of Christ. And so we're going to look at this text under three headings. We're going to consider Christ as Lord over creation, as Lord over new creation, and finally, as Lord over us. So beginning with Christ as Lord over creation, we look at verses 15 through 17, and Paul paints Jesus in cosmic terms. Uh, Verse 15, he calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, which is one of those phrases that raises more questions than it answers, doesn't it? You might be asking yourself, what do you mean that Jesus is firstborn? Are you saying that Jesus is some kind of creature? That God created Jesus in some way? Well, there are some groups, uh, such as the Arians uh, in the ancient church, uh, modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, who have used passages like these to say that, yes, Jesus is a created being. But you see, they assert that Jesus is God's foremost creation, meaning that he is utterly distinct from everything that God has created, but he's nevertheless still a part of that creation. But you see, if we just keep reading, we see that the very next verse combats and undermines any type of interpretation that would make Jesus a creature. You see, for by him, all things were created. So Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, not because he's some kind of supreme creation, but instead because he himself created. Do you hear that difference? Paul gives this title not because Jesus is created, but because he's the creator of all things. Now I say that, and you're probably still asking yourselves, okay, that's great, but what does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? Well, it means in short that Jesus is preeminent, that Jesus is supreme over all of his creation that he wields supreme and glorious power over everything that he has made. For example, firstborn sons in ancient Israel usually had prime position in terms of inheritance and in terms of honor amongst the children in the family. Or Psalm 89, verse 27, it refers to David as the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so what Paul is trying to get at is that this name It speaks to the ultimate supremacy that Jesus has as an agent in creation. And Paul takes this idea and he highlights Jesus' preeminence in two important ways. He highlights his preeminence in glory and his preeminence in power. So first, we see Jesus' preeminence in glory by the very fact that he is the Son of God. 
verse 15, we see that he is the image of the invisible God. And when we hear the word image, our mind tends to go back to the garden, right? How Adam and Eve were made in God's image. And I think that's a terrific impulse, that you and I are all people who reflect and are made in God's image. But Paul is getting at something deeper here. You see, where you and I merely reflect God's image, Jesus is the only one who was truly able to reveal the image of God in the fullest way possible to us. Consider John 1.18. It says that Jesus has made God known. And Jesus himself says in John 14.9 that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, Jesus, Jesus is able to make the invisible God visible. He's able to make this God known. He's able to reveal the very nature of God because he himself is fully God and fully man. Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the difference is that even though we have been made to reflect the image of God, and even though we have been made adopted sons and daughters in Christ, Jesus alone is the only one who can truly and fully reveal God's image. And he is the one who is exclusively the eternal, natural, only begotten Son of God fully God and fully man. And what that means is that in Jesus, we have our fullest revelation of God. The entirety of God's goodness, power, grace, and mercy are on display in Jesus. Everything that makes God glorious is the very same things that make Jesus glorious. So we couldn't think of a more glorious person as we tried. Fully man, but also fully God, preeminent, firstborn, supreme in his glory. But we also see that Jesus is preeminent in power as the creator. Nobody and no thing can match his creative power. Look at the list of things that he has created in verse 16. It says that he has created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. And what I find fascinating about this list is the sheer scale of it, because it includes not only things we can see and experience, but things that are completely outside of our everyday experience. If you look throughout Paul's letters, he uses that phrase, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, to talk about spiritual realities, to talk about the rulers that be that we can't even begin to experience. And yet here, Paul's wording is also ambiguous enough to include the rulers that are in power in this age and that we can see as well. And so what Paul is getting at is that nothing escapes God's creative power. Rulers and authorities in this world and in the world that we cannot see or experience, things that we have little or no perception of, even those things are under the rule and reign of Christ. And consider that in light of our Old Testament passage, Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? We know the answer. It's Jesus, the one who is preeminent, the one who is firstborn. He is the one that has the power to both create and sustain the waters the heavens, the earth, and everything within them. 
You know, one of my favorite parts about living in California for the past four years is that every single year, Tiffany and I got an opportunity to visit Yosemite National Park. And there was a, there's nothing that quite matches the feeling of when you stand in the center of Yosemite Valley. Because the first thing that you notice is that the only discernible horizon is way up there. And as soon as you realize that, you start to realize just how small you are. And then you consider a passage like this, and you realize just how small those mountains are in the grand scope of Earth. And then you start to realize with every new scientific discovery and every new satellite image that we are growing smaller and smaller. And it starts to settle in that you are infinitely small in comparison to this great big world, this great big creation and universe. And perhaps, if you've ever considered that, you start to feel confused. Perhaps you feel powerless. Perhaps you feel scared of this great big world, that it's leaving you behind. Well, you see, the world, it's certainly large. It's certainly perplexing at times. And yet, this passage is showing us that our hope and our sanity is grounded in the fact that God created it all. By the fact that Jesus doesn't abandon us or leave us behind in the midst of this ever-expanding creation, but instead, it tells us that he is the only one that stands in power and glory behind and above it all. Jesus is supreme in his glory and his power. And so we see that in Jesus' person and in his works that he is Lord of all creation, the firstborn of all creation, and that all things were created both through him and for him. They were created through him, which simply means that they were created by him. They were created for his glory. I think this morning we read Romans 11:26, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. But Paul also says that they were created for him, which has two very important meanings. The first is simply that all creation is made to reflect the glory of Christ. We reflect God's glory as image bearers, and yet all creation screams out that they are the product of a good and loving creator. But all creation, secondly, was also made for Christ as an inheritance. Hebrews 1-2 speaks of Jesus as both the creator, but also the heir of all things. And immediately it might dawn on you, but how can Christ inherit his own creation? Doesn't it belong to him? by the very respect of the fact that he created it? Well, yes, by all things, uh, all things were created by Christ, and they were created good, but we all know that they didn't remain good. Humanity fell into sin, and the rest of creation was corrupted by the fallout of that trespass, and all creation became lost and cut off from its creator. And yet, we see throughout Scripture that the Lord of all creation the one who stands outside of time decided to enter into time. We see that Jesus, the Son, by whom all things were created, took upon himself the nature of a creature. And why did he do that? He came in order to earn back his inheritance, to earn back his creation as an inheritance by the cross. He came to reconcile a wayward creation from the fallout of sin, death, and darkness. You see, this fallen creation groans, but it looks forward to a new creation, and that new creation could only be earned and inherited by Christ coming to this earth to live and die in our stead. Which brings us to our next point, that Jesus is not just Lord over creation, but Lord over new creation. 
Coming to verse 18, it looks like Paul almost repeats himself. But instead of calling Jesus the image and the firstborn of all creation, we see that Jesus is called the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And once again, we ask ourselves, Paul, what on earth do you mean by these phrases? Well, first, it means that Jesus is the first person to truly be raised from the dead to glory. He's not just the firstborn from the dead, but he is the first reborn. Something new has happened in Christ. And Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. See, Christ was the first reborn, but this isn't just a matter of birth order. It's not just a matter of chronology. It also means that Jesus, by his resurrection, has inaugurated new life. He has introduced new resurrection life in the stead of death. He is the beginning. He is the head of a completely new state of affairs. And by his resurrection, Christ put all things, all things under his feet, including the powers of sin, death, and darkness, meaning that they no longer have any power over him, but instead, he now reigns over them. Death thought it had the final say on the cross, but Christ was raised to glory and showed that the dominion of sin was no more. The dominion of death would not persist. And it's a definitive break, a definitive break with these forces he has introduced life and light in the stead of death and darkness. And it can't be overstated just how monumental this is for all of us. Our human comparison might be the toppling of the Berlin Wall. You see, when that wall came down, it represented a definitive break with a regime that at the time was characterized in terms of darkness, corruption, and oppression. Consider this quote from former President Obama reflecting on this event. He said, like so many Americans, I'll never forget the images of people tearing down the wall. There could be no clearer rebuke of tyranny. There could be no stronger affirmation of freedom. You see, on that day, everything changed for Europe because of one definitive break, but in a way that is so much more glorious that the wall can't even begin to compare. Everything has changed for us because of one definitive break. That's what the cross did for us. It created one definitive break with the forces of death, sin, and darkness. And so tyranny, oppression, death, they don't have the final say anymore because Jesus was raised from the dead to glory. And so just as Jesus is preeminent in creation, Paul is saying that he's also preeminent in new creation. He is the firstborn from the dead and the firstborn of creation, verse 18, so that in everything he might be preeminent. And he's also the head of this new creation, which means that every single person who's united to Christ the head is also a new creation. One of my absolute favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Jesus didn't come to just purchase a new life or a new state of affairs for himself. 
But Jesus came expressly to rescue and recreate an entire people for himself. Just as sin and death no longer have dominion over Christ, he came so that they would have no more dominion over us. And as a result, verse 18 says that that has made him the head of the body, the church. We are all gathered as members of one body, united to Christ the head. And we see that he didn't come for his own sake, but he came for our sake. He did everything in order to make his people a new creation. He would have been perfectly just to leave his creation in the midst of guilt, in the midst of death, in the midst of their sin. And yet he came to free us from that tyranny, to free us from that dominion. And it also means that Christ is both the Lord of creation and the Lord of new creation. And that as the God-man, he is the only one who is uniquely equipped to both sustain and reconcile all things to himself. In verses 19 through 20, they highlight this dual reality that on the one hand, Jesus is the sustaining, creating, Lord over all creation, of all power and all glory. And yet on the other hand, he is the Lord of new creation who has made peace by the blood of the cross the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in the one God-man, Christ. And so that's why Paul says in verse 17 that in him all things hold together. He is the head over everything. He is the foremost in creation and new creation. And therefore, it means we don't need to worry about the powers of this world and the uncertainties of this world. Whether they're things that are visible or invisible, thrones or dominions, powers or authorities, because they have all been reconciled and subjected to Christ through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Because Christ ascended, and where did he ascend to? To the right hand of God. He sat down at God's right hand to rule and to reign until every power has been put under his feet. And the last enemy to be conquered is death itself. And so he's truly Lord of all. He has eradicated these things that held us in dominion these things that held us in bondage, and he, done away, he has done away with them on the cross. But again, Jesus didn't just come to eradicate death and sin in the abstract. It's not like there were these cosmic nuisances that he had to get rid of. He came first and foremost to save sinners. He's not just Lord over creation and new creation, but moving to our final point, he's Lord over us. He came so that he could have the final say. Not sin, not death, not darkness. He is Lord over everything for the very purpose that we could be his. He came and entered into his creation to become Lord and to say of sinners, you belong to me. And in particular, this passage lays out four glorious realities that Christ came to do for us. First, looking at verse 13, it says, Jesus delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This means that we now live under a new regime and that Christ is our Lord. We used to serve the law and the sin and sin with fear and with trembling. Fear and trembling because we know that we could never save ourselves. We know that the only outcome of our striving was death. And yet, we have been delivered. We have been transferred. Christ is our Lord now. He saved us, and so we can now serve him with gratefulness and with joy. He tells us that sin and death, they have no more power over us. 
No more lasting power. We will all one day pass away, but sin will not have the final say. Death will not be the final word because we belong to Christ. And so this evening, if you find yourself in the midst of an ongoing battle with sin, if you feel like your growth in this Christian walk was hopeless, if you feel like God looks upon you and he only sees your sin stamped on your forehead, as if you are defined only by that sin that you are struggling with, remember that we are ultimately defined by our standing in Christ. We are defined and considered who we are because of what Christ has declared us to be and nothing else. And therefore, we can press on. The encouragement of this reality is not that we acquiesce to the fact that Christ has done it all and we do nothing, but it's, it's trusting in the fact that Christ has declared us to be something that we naturally are not because of what he has done. He has declared us to be delivered from the powers of sin and death. He has made us members of his kingdom. He has made us sons and daughters. He has forgiven us. And so he no longer looks upon us in judgment, but with grace. And since we have that promise, we can press on with confidence and we can trust that he will finish the good work that he has started within us. Second, verse 14 says that Jesus has given us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The very point of the cross is forgiveness because our sin created a debt that we could never repay. We would always have red on our ledger because of our sin, and it's nothing that we could ever get rid of on our own because our sin made a definitive break between us and God. But here tonight, that on the cross, Christ has made a definitive break between us and the powers of sin and the powers of death. A definitive break. And so, the guilt of our sin is washed away. We are washed clean. And so if you are tempted to think that God perhaps forgives but doesn't forget, I want you to hear these words from Psalm 103, verse 12, that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And remember that he knows just how far the east is from the west because, again, he created all things. You are defined by what Christ has done. You are defined by what Christ has declared to be true of you. And so if you have placed your faith in Christ, you are forgiven now. You have forgiveness of your sins now in Christ. Third, verses 21 and 22 say that Jesus has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death, even though we were once alienated and hostile in mind. You see, the cross doesn't remind us that not only is our guilt removed, but also the offense of our sin has been removed as well. See, we are not just guilty, but we become enemies as a result of our sin. Enemies with the living God. But you see, the cross doesn't just make us clean. The cross makes us children. So therefore, God is not still mad at you or merely tolerates you if you are in Christ. He is not this cold-hearted, Disney movie step-parent that merely tolerates your existence. No, instead, we can rest in the reality that if you belong to Christ, he delights in you as his very own child. And how often does that reality exist before us in a day-to-day? How often do we think that God merely tolerates us? That, sure, we have our guilt taken away, but that doesn't mean that God has to like us. No, instead, we have been reconciled to our God, that he is no longer this looming judge, but he is our heavenly father, 
and that he delights in us. And then finally, verse 22, Jesus came and died to present us blameless and above reproach before him. Everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us. His blamelessness, his righteousness, his inheritance, and his standing as a firstborn child of God. And you see, this means that the Father doesn't look upon us and see Jesus trying to box us out, trying to hide us or obscure us from the Father's view. No, instead, what Jesus does is he presents us blameless before God. He takes us by the hand, he strolls us up to the Father, and he says, behold, this one is blameless because of what I've done. We are a new creation in Christ. Jesus presents us not how he wishes us to be, but he presents us as we are. He presents us as who he will ultimately make us to be, which is a new creation. So if your fear or your shame or anything else makes you shrink back from God, that in the midst of your battle with sin or anything else, you turn away from this Father because you think that he merely tolerates you, because you think that Jesus is just standing in front of you, know that he truly delights in you, that Jesus is truly presenting you now, blameless before the Father. And so we can go to his throne of grace with boldness, knowing he will hear our prayers and that we will find mercy in Christ. See, at the end of the day, this passage ultimately shows us Christ and all of his lordship, glory, beauty, and grace, and that he alone is worthy of all praise because of who he is and what he has done as Lord over all. This is the antidote to any kind of counterfeit or domesticated savior, this glorious God-man. And so we are called to remember and to behold this Lord over new creation and Lord over creation. Remember what this loving Lord has done for you. The cosmic creator became the suffering servant for you. He loosened our bonds. He set us free from captivity to sin and death. And he took strangers and enemies and he has remade us into children. So in him we have deliverance, we have redemption, we have reconciliation, and we are presented as blameless new creations. He is not a powerless Lord. He is not a Lord of wishful thinking. He is not a Lord who is unable to give an answer to sin, death, and suffering because he has given an answer in the cross. He has given an answer by his resurrection. And his answer to this world is that he is the Lord over everything, that he has reconciled sinners to himself and that he has given them peace by the blood of his cross. And as Paul says in verse 23, this is the hope of the gospel that you heard, that the Lord over all things, the one that we had enmity with because of our sin, the one with whom we were enemies on account of our guilt, has now been able to reconcile us through his son. So if you hear this message, if you don't know who Christ is, I urge you this evening to talk to me, to talk to one of the elders, to know that this Christ is Lord over everything and yet entered his creation to live a perfect life and to die on the cross in order to give us forgiveness, in order to release us of our guilt and our offense, to reconcile us to God and to present us blameless before his Father. And so as you go out and you face this world, this world that offers you anything and everything all of the time, this world that is fragmented and confusing and bewildering, don't despair, but look up and see Christ, the Lord over everything. Let's pray.
Gracious and heavenly Father, we can't even begin to comprehend your goodness and your glory and your mercy. And yet you have revealed yourself to us in your Son. And we have even further revelation through your word that testifies to the Son and what the Son has done. We thank you so much that though we were debtors, though we were sinners, though we were at odds with you, it was your delight to send your Son to live a perfect life for us, to die on the cross for us, and then to raise from the dead to glory, and that he now sits at your right hand as a down payment, as a guarantee of what we will one day experience, that we will one day be with the Son face to face. And Lord, as we go out into an uncertain week, we pray that your Spirit may accompany us, that the Spirit that unites us to your Son, who is ruling and reigning now, would strengthen us, would comfort us, would embolden us to place our trust in Christ. And in the midst of our weakness, Lord, we pray that your spirit may minister all the more, all the more tenderly, all the more close, Lord. And we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this testimony. And we thank you that it's true that you are Lord over creation and new creation. And that we await that day when all things will be made new once again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all rise as we sing our final Oh no, which we just sing before the throne of God above.
says three times to you this evening as you go out. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let's conclude our worship by singing together, There is a higher throne.